0: All right, now I'm on. Thank you. That's what I was wondering about. I had not hit my switch. So, uh, those of you who are online, if you didn't hear that, I was just saying about that song we just sang. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody in our world could say that with all honesty? We believe in the name of our Father. We believe in the name of the Son of God. We believe in the resurrection, but sadly, that's not the case. But that tells us as a church that we have a lot more work to do. Jesus said that the harvest is white, it's ready, uh, but the laborers are few. The Times reporter of New Philadelphia, Ohio reported in September of 1985 a celebration of a New Orleans municipal pool. The party around the pool was held to celebrate the first summer in memory without a drowning at the New Orleans city pool. In honor of the occasion, 200 people gathered, including 100 certified lifeguards. As the party was breaking up and the four lifeguards on duty began to clear the pool, they found a fully dressed body in the deep end. They tried to revive Jerome Moody, age 31, but it was too late. He drowned, surrounded by lifeguards, celebrating their successful season. That's not what we as a church need to be about. We don't need to be a bunch of lifeguards manning the pool while people are drowning in sin. There's a lot of people around us that are drowning in sin. And sometimes I think we're more concerned about our gathering to celebrate than we are about those who would not gather because they don't care a thing about God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about returning to the temple, and we look at the things in the Old Testament as well as in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, the things that they prioritized when they came back. We have looked at the fact that they uh, talked about and they reemphasized the, the removing of th- that which was uh, idols. Those were things that were ungodly. Those things were distracting. They emphasized purifying their hearts and their lives, repairing the altar of God in, their, in the temple. They they prioritize prayer and seeking God. And then last week we talked about how they uh, prioritize the Holy Scriptures. Today, I want us to see something else that they put an emphasis on as they return back to the temple that I think we need to remember about what we are about. That is, they prioritize proclaiming the Word of God and persuading people to return to God. And let's look in Second Chronicles chapter 30. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 says that they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel. They resolved. They decided, they committed that they're going to make this proclamation. That they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. Since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders, and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. So they decided, they prioritized, here's what we need to do as we're regathering, is we need to send people out to gather people in. Is that what you're doing? Not just during this time, but as a, as a practice of your life. It says here, they sent runners. Are you a, a runner? Some, people are, some of you are runners. You, you like to exercise physically. But are you a runner for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the word of God? Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Let me ask you this morning, how beautiful are your feet? How beautiful are your feet? Not your physical feet, but how beautiful are your feet in the fact that you're taking the good news of Jesus Christ wherever you go, that you're proclaiming peace, that you're bringing glad tidings of good things, that you're proclaiming salvation. Psalm 68, 11 says, the Lord gives the word and a great army brings the news. You know what army should be bringing the news to this world? It's It's... The army of the church. We are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do march to the beat of a different drum. Not the drum of this world. The beat of the drum of this world is make money, be success, do all these things that, you're, that the world tells us to do. But we, beat, we march to the beat of a different drum. And that is the, our commander-in-chief is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given us marching orders to take the gospel into all the world. In Luke chapter 10 we find where Jesus, while he was here on earth, sent out 70 others. Now the others and that means other than the original 12. He sent out 70 others and he sent them out two by two into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And it says in verse 2, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray, pray. The Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. His harvest. All those lost people out there that are doing wicked and abominable things that discourage us so greatly in our uh, world, those are the, that's the harvest. That's the ones Jesus is sending us out to. He says here in verse three, go your way. In other words, as you're going about your way, go your way. And look what he says. Verse 5, but whatever house you enter. He talks about, verse 8, whatever city you enter. Verse 10, whatever city you enter. So what, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, guys, you can't reach people in the confines of the synagogue. You can't reach people in the confines of the house of worship. You have to go out. Second Chronicles, back in our main text, chapter 30, verse 10 says, so the runners passed from city to city to throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. So they left, and they went out running with this message. Christopher Searcy was playing basketball with his friends on May the 16th, 1998, when he was shot in the chest. And a bullet perforated his aorta. His friends helped him to get within 40 feet of the entrance of the Ravenswood Hospital. His friends then went inside and asked for help. The hospital staff refused to help Christopher, saying that it was against their policy to administer aid to those outside the hospital. Eventually, a policeman was able to get a wheelchair and wheeled Christopher into the hospital where he was helped by the hospital staff, but it was too late. And Christopher died about an hour later. Many times it seems that churches are surrounded by people that desperately need to hear the gospel, yet Christians are content to share it only with those who manage to come inside the building. You see, as we seek to regather, we need to remember what our purpose is. It's not just to create a holy huddle. It's We are gathered for inspiration, for encouragement, and refueling that we might go out into this world. That's why we put signs at every exit in, uh, of this church building. You are now entering your mission field, and now they become so accustomed that we probably don't even pay attention to them anymore or think about that anymore. Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 and 20. says, go and, and make disciples of all nations. He says in Acts 1, verse 8, He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. In Acts chapter 2, we see there at Pentecost. And verses 8 through 11, I'm not going to read all of those verses, but if you would look, all the people that were gathered there in Jerusalem that Peter was preaching to. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites. Those from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Romans, Jews, prosely, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs, all of them were gathered there and they were preaching the gospel. The Bible says in Revelation in chapter 7, the surrounding the throne of God at the end of time, there will be people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You see, our responsibility as a church of Jesus Christ is really not just to gather but to scatter. Our responsibility is to go out into all the world. See, the main work of the church happens Monday through Saturday. That's the main work of the church. That's the main thrust. That's the main focus of the church is meeting people, touching people's lives for those who are not inside this building who will never come inside this building until they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They were using their feet. How beautiful are the feet. Are you using your feet for the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ? But they were using their tongues as well. They were making a proclamation. They were declaring. These runners weren't just running. They were speaking a message. They were declaring the message or the command that the king had given them to To preach or to speak. In the book of Acts, we find that Peter and John were arrested for speaking in the name of Jesus. They were told to shut up, to be quiet. That's what our world's trying to tell us today, to shut up, to be quiet. We don't want to hear it. And sadly, many churches and many Christians are listening to the the influence of the world, and, and we're shutting up. We're being silent because it's not popular. But here's the response that the church ought to have. Here's the response all of us ought to have. Acts 4.20, Peter and John said, We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I prayed that it would be for me as well as it would be for you just an overflow. We couldn't, you couldn't stop the flow of God's word, the, the flow of the gospel from our lips. 1 John, John wrote these words, That which was from the beginning, and he's speaking of Jesus Christ, He said, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, and which we have handled concerning the word of life, Jesus. He said, the life was manifested. We have seen. So he said, we've heard, we've seen, we've handled. And now he says, and now we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and which was manifest. He repeats it again in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, what do we do? We declare it to you. You see, all of us, if you're listening this morning, you've been born again, you've been saved, we've experienced the life of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. We've heard it, we've seen it, we've handled it. It's, it's become a part of us. It's only natural for us to share it, to declare it. And if that's not what you're doing, then you need to reevaluate your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ because that's what's natural for a spirit-filled believer. They use their feet. They use their tongue. There's no such thing as a silent witness. There's no such thing as I'll just let my life speak for itself. No, that's a disobedient witness. No witness speak, doesn't speak. When you bring a witness to the courtroom... And he takes the witness stand and he swears they used to make you swear on the bible unfortunately that a lot most courtrooms don't do that anymore do you swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help you god i do then they stand up on the witness or sit down on the witness stand and they're asked a series of questions now how can they answer those questions if they never open their mouth how can they be a witness if they never speak how can you be a witness if you never speak? And what, how ridiculous would it be for the witness to stand and say, or to say to the lawyer or the prosecutor or the defense attorney or to the judge, I'm just going to let my life speak for itself. I'm, I'm, just, I don't, I'm not going to use my words. I'm just going to let my life speak for itself. That's not a witness. Yes, your life needs to match your witness, but no witness for Christ can be silent. And if you think you can be silent and be an obedient Christian, you're sadly mistaken, and you're unbiblical in your thinking. They use their feet, they use their tongue, and they use the word of God. In Second Chronicles chapter 30, it says they took the letter of the king, and they spoke according to his command. What do we use in our witness? You say, I don't know what to say. This is what you say. This is what you say. That's why I love Bill Faye's method of witnessing. So he takes a little pocket New Testament and he just turns it around and he has them read it. And then he just asks, "What does that say?" And they try to say what it says to them. And he'll turn to another scripture. He doesn't make any comment. He says, "What does that say?" And he just says the Holy Spirit do all the work. He doesn't say anything. He makes no comment. He just turns the Scripture and lets the Scripture speak. You see, that's all you have to do. That's all we have to do, just let the Scripture speak. The Bible is our message. It's our letter from the King. And that's what we carry with us to make the proclamation. The Bible's our authority. What if they don't believe the Bible? That's the common question let me ask you this do you believe the Bible I'm a, i would imagine most of you listening or watching today would say yes I believe the Bible let me ask you another question then why do you believe the lies of the devil you say I don't believe the lies of the devil yes you do if you didn't believe the lies of the devil then why do you worry why are you afraid why do you think you're inferior Why do you let your emotions run away with you? Because you're believing the lies of the devil. Here's the point. If the devil's lies can be believed because he shouts them in our ears and repeats them over and over, how much more powerful then is the truth? Gaylord Kamburami, the general secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe, tried to give a New Testament to a very belligerent man. The man insisted that if he took the Bible, all he would do would be to roll the pages with tobacco and use them to smoke cigarettes. Mr. Kambarami said, I understand that, but at least promise me to read the page of the New Testament before you smoke it. The man said, okay, and they went their two separate ways. Fifteen years later, the two men met at a convention in Zimbabwe. The scripture smoking and pagan had been saved and was now a full-time evangelist. He told the audience, I smoked Matthew, I smoked Mark, and I smoked Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment on. You see, Paul said it, and we forget it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it." is the power of God unto salvation to all people who will believe. We forget that the power is not in our method of persuasion. The power is not in our explanations or our arguments. The power is in the Word of God, the gospel, right here. And all you have to do is, is use it. It doesn't matter if they believe it. Share it with them and let the Holy Spirit do the work. They may throw it in the trash, but share it with them. And watch what God will do. What should our message be? Well, He outlines it for us here, right in the book of 2 Chronicles and the book of Acts. Look at, look at that with me in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 6. They, the runners went through with the letters, speaking according to the command of the king, and here's what it said Children of Israel, what? Return to the Lord. What is our message? Come to God. Come to God turn to the Lord, turn to God. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter's preaching. Peter said, repent. What does that mean? He's means turn from your sin and turn to God and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Acts 3.19 said the same thing. Repent. Therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You know, this book is not outdated. It still has power. You say that term repent and turn back to God, that's an outdated concept. No, it's not. It's only outdated because the church of Jesus Christ, is, the people of God are not using it anymore. We need to call people to repent and to turn from their sin. Let the word of God speak call people to turn back to the Lord. What else are we what what else should our message include? It should include God's dealing with mankind throughout history. How does God deal with mankind? Look at verse 7 of 2nd Chronicles 30. Part of this message said this, "And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, so that he gave them up to desolation as you see." I think it's important for us to show people how mankind has perverted the plan and the purpose and the ways and the word of God. People need to hear the fact that here's what God's standard says. Here's what we've done. And so therefore, what has God done? How's he going to deal with us? A lot of people think, first of all, there is no God. There is no standard of right and wrong. We need to remind them there is. Even if they shout it's not, we hold it up that it is. And that when we fall short that some people think God's ready to strike them dead and send them to hell. No, the Bible says he takes no pleasure in the depth of the wicked. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says he devises ways for us to come back to him. And what is that way? The way is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Those that come to the Father can only come through me. So we show them God's dealing with man. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see Stephen, a man full of faith, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's being persecuted for it, about to be stoned, as a matter of fact. And when I say stoned, I don't mean smoking marijuana. I mean stoned with rocks. He's about to get killed by people throwing and hurling stones at him. And in chapter 7 of Acts, he details the activity of God in the life of Israel. He shows them how God was merciful, how God was gracious, how God was kind. Even when Israel rebelled against God, that God in his mercy provided a way for them to be forgiven. But at the very end of his message, he still says, listen to how strong of language this is in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. And he's calling them. He's saying it what it is. He's not backpedaling. He's not tiptoeing through the tulips. He's calling it what it is. You say, that's not popular today. I don't care what's popular today. What's popular today is sending people to hell. It's time for the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God to mean business. Their people are dying and going to hell. You say, that's offensive. Well, let me ask you this. I would be willing to offend somebody speaking the truth and love to them than not speak a word to them and they die and go to hell. Which is worse? Them being offended at me speaking the truth or them dying and going to hell? They'll be offended there for all of eternity. Aren't you willing to risk that? What's our message? Turn to the Lord. Show them God's dealing with man through history that, yes, God has a standard. Man has failed that standard, but God has provided a way for them to come back. What's our message? Our message is humble yourselves, yield, submit. Look at chapter 30 of 2 Chronicles, verse 8. The runners, the proclaimers said, Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord. How do we come to Christ? We don't come proud. We don't come arrogant. We don't come stiff-necked. We come humbly. I talk to pre, uh, couples who are getting married, and part of my pre-counseling, premarital counseling uh, time with them is talking about what it means for a wife to submit and a husband to be the head of the home and to love his wife. And I talk about how each of those things are pictures of how Christ loves us and how we come to Christ. How does Christ love us? He loves us. We talked about that a few weeks ago. More than our minds could possibly fathom. He, gave down, he laid down his life for us. How do we come to Christ? We submit. So when a, wife, when a husband loves his wife, is picturing how Christ loves us. And, and, a, and a good marriage is a reflection to the world about how Christ loves us. How a wife submits to her husband is a picture of how all the world must come to God, not stiff-necked, not insisting on their own way, but humbly. And so our message is humble yourselves. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verses uh, 6 through 10, God resists the proud. you can't come proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. That's the message. We need to let people be hearing that. If you will draw near to God with a humble heart of repenting from your sin, He will draw near to you. That's a great message. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 repeats pretty much the same thing. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. That's our verbal message It's also our lifestyle message. Are they seeing that in your life? Are they seeing that you're humbling yourself? And are you yielding and are you submitting? Are you headstrong, haughty, proud, arrogant, rude, boastful, insisting on your own way? If they see that in the church of Jesus Christ, then the world's not going to listen to our message of humility and repentance. They discount us because they don't see that our lives match the words. So this in, indeed is where life really matters. What our message should be, turn to the Lord. Show them God's dealing with man. Humble yourselves. And then lastly, or not lastly, but next, is invite them to the house of God. Invite them to the house of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 9. Here's what those runners, Old Testament evangelists said. If you return to the Lord... Your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful. He will not turn His face from you if you return to Him. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, we find the uh, early believers, those first 3,000 that were saved. It says... They continue daily with one accord in the temple. Invite them to the house of God. You say, well, we're not in the house of God. We are in some unprecedented territory here. I don't think that goes without, I think that goes without saying. But you can still invite them to the house of God. You can still invite them to join you for our Sunday school. And it's not going to be long before we're going to be in this place. But the point is this, the power of a personal invitation. January the 1st, 2010 a law went into effect in the state of Texas that required the Department Department of Public Safety to ask all driver's license applicants. So now all the clerks at the Department of Public Safety had to ask all those who were applying for a driver's license, would you like to become an organ donor? Now, that may be a law in Georgia because every time I get my license renewed, they ask me the same question. The result of that law in Texas in 2010 resulted in the du- and doubling the number of registered organ donors. Just the fact that they asked. Double the number. Think of what could happen if Christians would ask every person they came in contact with if they would like to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Or if they would join them for Bible study next Sunday. Or if they would like to come and worship with you next week. Do you think if we used the power of invitation that we could see double the people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Invite people to come to Christ. Invite them to come to church. And lastly, what was their message? Their message was of God's grace and mercy. Look at chapter 30, 2 Chronicles again, verse 9. If you return to the Lord, your brethren, your children, you will be treated with compassion so that they may come back to this land for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. We need to be proclaiming God's grace and God's mercy. Yes, we have to address the fact of sin. The message of God's grace and God's mercy does not erase the message of what is sin. You identify sin and then you say, but God's mercy is ready to forgive. What is there to be forgiven of if we never talk about sin? That's another reason I like I like um, also um, I just, his name just left my right now it was not it was somebody else, I was another evangelist I was thinking of. Uh, Ray Comfort, Ray Comfort, His method of soul-winning, or his method of sharing the gospel is he starts with the law. He starts with the Ten Commandments. And he has the people, he gives them a little slip of paper that has the Ten Commandments on it, and he, he hands them the Ten Commandments. He says, would you look over that list? And then he asks them, in that list, do you see where you have violated any of those? He said, every time I do that, everybody, people say, yep, yep, plenty. And he says, that's what the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but, and he shows them the free gift of God's grace in god's mercy for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life god demonstrated his his uh, love to us in that while we were still sinners christ died for us the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord you see we demonstrate we show them sin but we show them god's grace and god's mercy and you know what we can expect when that happens I hope you know this. Expect mockery. Expect to be made fun of. And some of you say, well that's why I'm not doing it. But look at verse 10 of 2nd Chronicles 30. So the runners passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. It says same thing in Acts chapter 2 verse 13. It says as they were preaching, it says others mocking made fun of Peter and them saying they were full of, they were just drunk. You can expect mockery. I've told you this story before when I was a youth pastor. Uh, we had a scavenger hunt. The way we would do scavenger hunt was the last thing on the list. That, and we would take them to malls and we would tell them, here's what you need to look for, here's what you need to collect. But the last list on the scavenger hunt was we'd, I'd give them a gospel track to all my kids. And I'd say, all right, the last thing you got to do is give this gospel track to, to a person. That's the last item on the scavenger hunt before you, your team can can win. You, you all have to give out a track in the mall. And there was this one uh, teenage boy, and interestingly enough, he eventually became a youth pastor, but he said, I can't do that. I'm too afraid. I, I, I don't know. What if they say no? What if they say no? Well, I made the mistake of saying nobody's going to say no. Anybody's going to take a track. Well, he comes up to me at the end of the scavenger Sunday. He got in my face. He said, I thought you said nobody would tell me no. He said, I tried to give to this lady, and she was ugly and me, and she said no. She didn't want that. It taught me a lesson. There are people out there who don't want to hear it. Just because there's people out there who don't want to hear it doesn't mean we need to be people that don't share it. There are people who are going to mock you, going to mock this church, going to mock this pastor. They're going to make fun of us, and it's going to hurt our feelings, but we got to get over that. Jesus said it was going to happen. So expect mockery. Expect resistance. And as the world gets worse, Expect that we may even be banned from meeting together. That's when we go underground. But here's what else you can expect. Expect that some will respond in faith. Verse 11 and 12 of 2 Chronicles 30. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zabulon humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. And then we look at Acts chapter 2, what was happening in the New Testament. Peter was preaching. He called them to repent. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and believe. And it says, that day, He told them, verse 40, Be saved. Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. In Acts chapter 4, Peter had another opportunity to preach. They spoke. Verse 2, There was opposition. Verse 3, the preachers, Peter and them, got in trouble. Verse 4, but many of those who heard the word believed, and that day 5,000 were saved. You see the cycle? The people spoke. It offended a lot. Got the speakers in trouble, but many people got saved. You can expect mockery. You can expect opposition. But you can expect people will be saved. People will come to the faith of Jesus Christ. And what we just sang before I preached was more people will be able to sing that song with us. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God, three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again. More people will be able to sing that. At the church will get more interested in what goes on outside the door buildings and the walls than they do inside on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur there was once a crude little life-saving station the building was just a hut and there was only one boat but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea with no thought for themselves they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost at sea. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and their money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, the little life saving station grew. Some members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it so beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motive still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a miniature lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities since they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked on those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old one. It evolved into a club. And yet another life-saving station, station was founded, and history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. I think that story speaks for itself. Dawson Street Baptist Church, God put us here as a life-saving station, not a social club. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's our focus. Before people drown in sin, we have to rescue perishing. Would you join me in reuniting around that purpose so that we can reach more people and more people can join us in singing, I believe. Let's pray. Would you spend some time just talking with God right there where you are? Jesus said the laborers are few. The harvest is great. God didn't call us to hire lifeboat captains to do all the work. Every believer is a lifesaver. That's you and that's me. You may have to begin with confession. Asking God to forgive us for not making that a priority in our lives. Would you ask God to raise you up as a laborer? He's already given you what you need. He's given you the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Thank him for that. Would you ask him to help you to be obedient to his commission on your life? You don't have to fill a pulpit to be a proclaimer or a declarer or a runner. Would you just say, Lord, I'll be a runner for you. I'll take your proclamation, your word, wherever I go. I would believe that you want to see people saved as much as I do. I believe that you rejoice when they are saved. But what are we doing about it individually? What are you doing about it? And are we collectively as a church more focused on other things than we are on that? Would you ask God to help us as a church to place a greater priority on reaching the lost, proclaiming the gospel? Lord, thank you that one day when I was a six-year-old boy, there was a church, St. Bernard Baptist Church in Chalmette, Louisiana. It had a mission for reaching people. And Lord, it was at that time we were not even meeting in the church building. We were meeting in a high school uh, cafeteria. you saved a six-year-old boy named Lee Waller in a high school cafeteria where the church met you didn't need the building you just used the gospel it got to my heart and it changed me forever Would you use me and our people here at Dawson Street? Fill us with your spirit as we take the gospel out into this community, this state, this nation, and this world. Because Lord, there are people drowning in the sea of sin. And we call ourselves a life-saving station, and we talk a lot about it. Lord, would you make us a life-saving station? Would you make every household of your people in this church a life-saving station? And I pray that we would expect persecution the mockery but that it would not discourage us Lord I pray that we would also see more people this year even though there's only about six months left more people coming to Christ this year than we have in years previous because of our obedience to your command forgive us for our disobedience Forgive us for our neglect. Forgive us for our apathy and complacency. Fire us up and energize us by your spirit to be your witnesses wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much for being here. And again, what a blessed time it was for us to see. Uh, some of the church body gathered for our